Hey, hey, water coolians, welcome back to another episode of the best water related podcast, Water Cooler Talk. Today on the show, we are joined by new friend Professor Zubin Zhang to talk about the increase in extreme weather conditions across the globe and how using weather modification techniques could become a potentially viable solution to those most impacted by the increase. Obviously, this creates the moral dilemma over playing as quote unquote mother nature. But as mentioned by Professor Zhang in these in the episode, it's important that when we modify the weather, we've, you know, as he said, we've already been modifying the weather in places like airports to remove fog. But when we do modify the weather, we are doing it from a place of a positive outcome for both obviously the individuals who could be impacted, and then of course the actual environment. Um, because in case you didn't know, global warming is real, not really a hot take anymore. And that means extreme weather events are going to continue to happen. Basic scientific fact. People who live in those areas most impacted probably don't want to live there anymore. No exaggerations, just facts. So how can we as humans use our knowledge and technology to help save our earth. Well, for example, in this episode, the professor and I discuss how drones with freaking laser beams on their heads, <laughs> but actually drones with laser beams, are being used to shock rain clouds into dumping rain through a more advanced process that has been used for decades called cloud seeding. And also what that could possibly mean for the future of diplomatic relationships between countries that struggle to have adequate rainfall throughout the year because now they may just have to worry about Rain theft. Rain theft, right? I mean, imagine someone stealing the rain. Sounds like a villainous plot from a campy villain. But just facts. No exaggerations. And then before we jump into our conversation and to help our audience grow and these conversations to reach a broader audience, please subscribe to Water Cooler Talk Podcast where... Ever you listen to podcasts, follow us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod, where you can interact with this episode's topics, share your thoughts maybe on your favorite villainous plot from a campy villain, or just leave us a short positive review on Apple to help further support the show. Thank you. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 72 titled Ocean Deserts with Zubin Song. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Professor, are you ready to jump into our first news article of the episode? Yes. All right, let's do it. This is from Forbes Energy, written by Ariel Cohen, July 28th, 2021. How Dubai is using laser drones to shock rainwater out of the sky. The United Arab Emirates, UAE, has been hit particularly hard by this season's sweltering heat, recording a high temperature of over 125 degrees Fahrenheit. What's worse, Dubai receives about 3 to 4 inches of rainfall annually, making summers unbearable and domestic agriculture nearly impossible. As people do their best to stay inside and stay cool, experts at the country's National Center of Meteorology have introduced a novel technology to make a world of difference. Drones? with laser beams, specifically drones that force precipitation via laser beams. The science is called cloud seeding and has existed in various forms for several decades. First discovered and explored in 1946 by researcher Vincent Schaefer, cloud seeding adds certain substances or chemicals such as silver iodide to existing clouds to induce rain or snow. 
given that the byproducts of these weather-altering quote-unquote seedings will quite literally be raining down on people's heads, crops, and drinking water, there are significant safety concerns surrounding the scientific procedure. Some fear that accumulated silver particles might linger, eventually proving to be carcinogenic, causing cancer, or harmful to the local environment. The claims of a negative environmental impact have been disputed in many peer-reviewed research papers. I just do want to point that out. But back to the UAE. The UAE has invested more than $15 million on nine quote-unquote rain enhancement projects over the years, the first eight of which use traditional cloud seeding methods, as I described above. But the country is now taking a different approach. Rather than dispersing particles as done in traditional cloud seeding, the Emirate Weather Center is using drones with laser beams to zap the air into submission. These drones are designed to target certain clouds and use electrical discharges to forcibly pull together small water droplets in the air, thus triggering desired rainfall. The question now becomes whether the rest of the world will follow their example. If a... <laughs> If a fleet of drones can address a drought in a viable, cost-effective manner, it would be a mistake to write off potentially world-changing benefits. That said, such gains are not reason to fully throw caution to the wind with powerful technology. The risks of induced rain are less obvious than the risks of, say, Bill Gates plotting to dim the sun. Well, keep the story for another episode, listeners. But some experts are worried that the process could inadvertently trigger flooding. <coughs> Operation Popeye by the US during the Vietnam War. <coughs> Sorry, off. More troublesome, though, is a, is a threat which will remain even should the process be proven entirely risk-free. Water security is a priority for every country. Without water, there is no life, no agriculture, and just straight up no country. Wars have been and are being and will be fought over water access. A thirsty country triggering rainfall to the detriment of their neighbors is arguably taking what's not theirs. The settling of claims and conflicts over quote-unquote stolen rain could be a new and problematic form of dispute for the world, particularly if future summers are likely to remain as hot as this one. So, Professor, you have you have a bit of experience in the cloud seeding kind of universe, having worked as a thesis advisor for a study that attempted to clarify the rain plow effect, the folklore idea that rain will follow the plow. So what are your thoughts on specifically this type of weather modification in cloud seeding? You know, we human beings always try to do something about the environment or I mean remodeling your home. So we will always try something and sometimes you feel excited, you claim success. But once you cool down, then you realize the situation may not be as good as you imagine or you assume. For, for weather modification, people indeed have been doing that for decades. The difficulty is how do you know that's due to your weather modification effect because you can never find two clouds exactly the same mm -hmm. so that you can do the comparison. But still, we have to keep trying. Yeah, I know there was, I don't know if you know about the Snowy Project in 2017 that was able to successfully show that there is this quantitative evidence that cloud seeding actually kind of worked, but that was just because they had this high-tech radar that was able to, in your case, I mean, trying to get two days of weather that are exactly the same is very difficult. Yeah, yeah. still, you know, we are much better say than five decades ago. When, when people began to do the weather modification, we really didn't know how to assess if the 
change of rainfall or snowfall is due to the weather modification. Today's situation is much better. We have much better computer models, supercomputers to do the modeling. And then we can also have powerful new technologies such as radars to measure the detailed cloud's macro-physical process so that we actually know how the modification affects the cloud droplet formation, the growth of the droplet, and finally fall to the ground as rainfall or snowfall. But still, that question remains, how do you know what would happen without any weather modification? Mm-hmm. And uh, in the end, there are certain consensus emerging still after decades of research. For example, over mountainous regions, there is an overall consensus weather modification would increase the rainfall by 10 to 15% because you have all the favorable conditions because of topography. For flat surfaces, it's a little bit more challenging, but still there are reported positive results. At the same time, you have to keep in mind, if you have very negative results, it's tough to get them published. So there is a bias in the selection of peer-reviewed articles. Yeah, we talked about this in a previous episode with Joe. It's like you're not going to get funded to have negative results or no results at all. You know, if you're funding a study, they want results and you kind of create results that may not exactly be there. That's right. But I'm not saying everybody is doing that because of that. But overall, that's that's a factor. Mm -hmm. And how do you see you know, something like cloud seeding playing a factor, if it is a viable option, do you see this being a important factor in, I mean, say where you are out in Arizona, you know, providing rainfall, so you're not always in these quote unquote mega droughts? You you know, over Western states, including Arizona, we have been doing the weather modification for decades. So there is nothing new. And again, it's very fortunate over mountainous regions, we do see some positive impacts. So they are helpful, particularly for the headwaters of major rivers, such as Colorado River. If you increase the snowfall at the top of mountains, you increase overall source of water for Colorado River. That would help many of the Western states. And that's also part of the reason people have been doing that for a long time. So in mountainous Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let me just explain. What are we talking about for uh, cloud seeding? Basically, most of the time, to have water vapor to condense to form cloud droplets, there must be a cloud condensation nuclei or ice nuclei. Then you can form the cloud droplets or snowflake. Then they can grow. If they become large enough, they fall down as rainfall or snowfall. So that's the overall process of the science. Mm-hmm. And the cloud seeding essentially try to enhance that opportunity or accelerate the process to enhance the precipitation. And that's what, from what I understand, the silver iodide is doing, is creating those ice crystals. Is that correct? That, that's right. Okay. And then I really don't know too much about chemistry, but from a aspect of, I think I feel like earlier in like the 2000s, the 1990s, there was this fear of like acid rain. Is like this something 
you know, humanity should be concerned about is silver iodide in our rain and our water? Or is it something that there's really not enough out there? I know like elemental and chemical silver are two different things, but is that something people should be concerned about? <laughs> you know, that's really a good question. Acid rain is due to air pollution, not because of the cloud seeding. And when people design cloud seeding, those are the two conditions. One, the small particles can act as a cloud condensation nuclei or ice nuclei. And the second, they should not have negative impact on the ecosystem and on human beings. So I, I don't think that's the reason for acid rain. <laughs> but okay, in this world with internet No, access, no, I meant like, yeah. you know, people w might think that these are connected. You know, people that uh, might yes, not understand yeah. the scientific yeah. process might be like, oh, you're putting now silver iodide in our rain clouds. I don't know what that is. Are you creating acid rain? <laughs> you know what I mean? So you know what I mean yeah, with that? Yeah, yes. That's a fair question. I'm saying, really, that's not the case, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Professor, for making it clear. Uh, but yeah, back to this mountainous regions versus flat regions. As you were mentioning, you know, we, you've seen these positive effects in the mountain regions, the mountainous regions. So when you get to an area like Dubai, which is relatively flat and desert, there's more concerns or they're not more concerns, but there's, you know, this aspect of does this actually work? Because we only have this positive data, if I'm hearing you correct, in mountainous regions. You, you know why mountainous regions, for, for, really for good reasons. First, we know the physics better. Second, because the flow is the same. You have the air move up here. Upward motion pushes the water vapor become colder to condense to form cloud droplets to fall down precipitation. We know the process. We do the computer modeling. More importantly, we can find the two nearly identical clouds, one with seeding, one without seeding. Then we can observe and do the modeling over flat areas. It's just not easy to have two clouds, more or less the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's why we are making those uh, arguments, but we are not saying those measurements are not robust. We just do not have enough samples to draw a very solid conclusion with consensus. And then, well, like, what kind of role will technology play in kind of fighting, you know, climate change and? getting more data and, you know, having more of these, you know, machines that can predict this type of thing. You, you, you know, we human beings have been doing weather modification all the time. Some of them are very successfully. For example, uh, fog suppression or fog removal at airports with heavy fog limited visibility. You cannot have aircraft taking off. What do you do? You get rid of fog. Using some technologies, you can add, again, okay, the tiny particles to help them to form raindrops to fall down, you clear the fog, or you heat the air, you increase the relative humidity, then fog cannot exist anymore. I mean, that's just an example. Humanity has used quite successfully. So we have always used technology to help us. Of course, something was controversial. Things like the storm prevention, you might have heard, for example, hurricanes. Hurricanes are great for bringing out the precipitation and for the energetics of the atmosphere, but they might give people trouble in coastal regions. So there are people thinking of how do we 
decrease the destruction of hurricanes. And then people think of forest fire. How do you fight the fire? You try to cut off the supply of air or oxygen. Mm -hmm. Then the fire cannot keep growing. And for hurricanes, the energy source is ocean. And uh, so people's imagination is that, okay, if we put a layer of oil there, that cut off the energy supply to the atmosphere, hey, that might work. But, but again, you, you, you have imaginations in reality. It's just more complicated. For that case, for example, hurricane wind is so strong, the wind will mix the ocean water in the end. The, the oil of the surface will not be effective. In reality, human beings always try to do something, but doesn't mean we are going to be successful every time <laughs> or even most of the times, but we will keep trying. And that's another example, just like cloud seeding, people will keep trying. And there is another impact. That's the political side of the cloud seeding. Because if the government is supporting cloud seeding, you can imagine over Middle East, there is no rain. Government is trying. If you have more rain, government can take credits. Everybody is happy. But suppose there is no impact. Government can still take credit because we have tried something, citizens. <laughs> or at least your government has tried something, but just didn't work this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know places like Dubai where they import 80% of their food, you know, they're definitely thinking, all right, if we could do this, you know, and if we could have these positive benefits, why not? But that's the thing, you know, like, in your opinion, you spent years within, you know, weather and atmospheric science. Should we be doing this? I mean, should we be playing, quote unquote, as Mother Nature? Because I know there's like that moral benefits of like a hurricane. Like, obviously, you don't want a hurricane to completely wipe out a coast. But at what point does, say, <laughs> nuking a hurricane just become <laughs> ridiculous? Well, my, my own view is that we should keep trying, but do not feel we have something that's guaranteed to work so that we do that worldwide. We have to be cautious because most of the time human beings are arrogant, including you and me, probably. We simply don't know what we don't know and we become too confident. And there are consequences. Here, we talk about our own home, our own earth. There is only one earth like ours, and we have to be careful in terms of what we are doing. But we should try because those are real issues. The extreme weather is real. The shortage of rainfall in Arizona, in Western U.S., in Middle East, it's real. We have to do something. And trying different things is the right way to go forward, but with caution. Well, those are very lovely words, Professor. I think we'll end that conversation with that. I would like to welcome to the show the respected Professor of Atmospheric Sciences, along with many other accolades at the University of Arizona, Professor Zhang. Professor, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. You are welcome. Uh, so as far as kind of, as you're saying there at the end, as far as extreme weather goes, if we are to continue on our current path of this moment, how would the Earth respond? And would we be having more frequent extreme weather? Would we be having bigger storms, a combination of both? Because in your article for the conversation, you talked about how a European storm burned was 1.2 to 9 times less likely than it would have been in a world that was 1.2 degrees Celsius cooler. You know, both will become worse. We are going to have more extreme events, more droughts more powerful storms. We actually just published a peer review article 
in terms of global warming and uh, extreme events, there, there are some fascinating new findings there. Let me just share a couple of them with you. For example, Arctic is warming very fast, so-called polar amplification, on average about twice as fast as the global average. So we see the permafrost source, for example, that damages the foundation of houses, the roads, the railways, the transportation. It, it is real. And increase the temperature will increase the occurrence of extreme events over the Arctic. In contrast, over the Amazon rainforest, temperature increase is much slower compared with Arctic. The question is, where do you expect to see more frequent extreme events over the Arctic or the jungle in the tropics? What we found is it is in the Amazon rainforest. In other words, for the given location, OMI will increase extreme events. And when you compare two areas, we introduce a new concept called normalized OMI. It is a actual warming divided by the year-to-year variability. For example, over Arctic, you can easily change 10 degrees Celsius or 20 degrees Fahrenheit from year to year. But over the tropics, there is no way. If you change by one degree or two degrees, that's a big deal. And because of that, normalized warming is actually stronger over the Amazon compared with the Arctic. And for that reason, there will be more extreme events over the rainforest than over the Arctic. They are not of subsequent consequences because of those events. If you want, I can share some with you. Yes, please do. Uh, for, for example, people talk about migration. Okay, you know, these days, for real or for political reasons, there is a lot of news media report about the migrants moving from Central America or even South America going through Mexico, the, the caravan, all the way towards the American border. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about all different reasons. Now, some people are talking about that's partly the consequence of global warming. Of this extreme weather is causing them to move yeah, up. Yeah, the, the extreme weather of the tropics make life much more challenging to sustain. But roughly speaking, human beings and the ecosystem the same. We can adapt if the change is slow. Mm-hmm. But when the change is too fast, we cannot adapt anymore. And because we are saying over tropics, extreme events occur much more frequently than the rest of the world. Some people began to argue that's part of the reason human beings cannot adapt easily anymore. The want to migrate is something tough to prevent. Yeah, it's easier to get out than have your house destroyed every two, three years. Yeah, yeah. And kind of, if you could kind of re-explain, like, so why is this, why are these extreme weather conditions happening so much in these warm areas near the, would it be near the equator? Well, specifically, we look at the different regions, say Amazon rainforest versus tropical ocean mm-hmm. or mid-latitude ocean versus mid-latitude land. Another finding is, we human beings are self-centered. We worry about us. We live overnight, not in the ocean. Turns out there will be more marine heat wave than heat wave overnight over the same latitudes. So we are going to have trouble maintaining the diversity in the ocean for the fish. 
to survive. Yeah, we talked about in a recent episode with you know Ray Chemeki is we talked about this idea that how we're changing these how we eat and you know will we go towards more of a marine based diet kind of what they have in say the Mediterranean which is considered a more healthy diet but if you're having these extreme weather conditions that are affecting that source of food that becomes another issue rather on top of the destruction and on top of as we'll talk about in the second news story sometimes you can only grow seeds in certain places in certain climates at certain temperatures with certain amount of rain uh, a certain amount of water and so all of these extreme weather conditions are just compiling on and somebody's going to be like yeah i don't want to be here because <laughs> it's not conducive to surviving as a human and having my family survive and having my legacy survive you know that's indeed the case we have recognized we have desert overland. We also have deserts in the ocean. That's not something everybody uh, has heard about, but they are deserts over ocean. Mm-hmm. If we further increase consumption, uh, I mean fish, for example, uh, from the ocean, there will be additional uh, stress for the ocean ecosystem. How that will play out, we don't know, but we have already seen the examples of those marine extreme heat. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting just, you know, thing to think about. And I mean, like, you know, obviously you're in more of a position within, you know, uh, atmospheric science, but like what should the everyday person do? Is it just, just be research on this, understand, you know, your impact? Like what the heck should people do? Oh, I mean, a lot of things we, we can do. I mean, I'm excited about this topic because your audience could do something as well at different levels. So let me just start at the first level. You try to protect yourself. Honestly, I'm not going to buy a house in a disaster-prone areas. <laughs> okay? You could have yeah. beautiful views, the mountain view, the forest view, or the ocean view. But I know those areas will be hit bad. I'm not going to Waste my money, no, I'm not going to. So that's something for people's self-protection. The, the second thing is we have to think about our own lifestyle. I mean, here in America, I'm talking about American lifestyle. We do enjoy our lifestyle, but we have really a wasteful. A very abundant lifestyle. Yeah. Look at how much stuff we waste. I mean, we threw all those unused food away at our dinner table. We simply order way too much. Mm -hmm. We don't need to. And even for our own house or your house, uh, my house, our neighbor's houses, not in terms of size, but even for bathroom, you must have six light bulbs where. Why do we need all those light bulbs for your bathroom? We can have a better designs of the house to reduce the consumption. That's the key. Typically, government wants to get the votes. They only want to emphasize the production rather than emphasize the consumption. Mm-hmm. You talk about what we can do individually. We should maintain a comfortable life because we need that. We want that. Nothing wrong with that. But whenever possible, reduce our consumption. That's something all of us could do. And finally, individually, what we can do is push our representatives. They are elected by us. 
We need to remind them we need to do things to save our environment with our votes. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the big conversations I've even had on the show, you know, we talk about this, I think, 70% figure with companies and what they're producing with global waste. But also it's, you know, companies are producing this waste because people want to buy stuff and people want things and people want to have more than, like you were saying, more than they need. And so there is, it's not this either or, you know, companies need to be better or people need to be better. It's like both of them together need to be better and decide that we want to change this culture to be more green and to be more eco-friendly and to be more, as you're saying, we don't need 10 light bulbs in our bathroom. We may only need one or two. Exactly. I mean, of course, it's much easier to blame others than blame ourselves mm-hmm. even though it's yes i'm drifting to another topic about the drugs in america drug abuse use is a big issue we always blame other people bring the drugs to the u.s but not blaming us we are consuming those drugs in the first place and of course not coming back for the environment really there is much each of us could do without sacrificing our lifestyle completely. But if we are careful, we can really do better. And that will decrease the pressure for producing more. Yeah, I always think about like Apple. It's like, do they need to produce a new iPhone every year? Well, they're doing that because people want a new iPhone every year. But what if we change the culture that said, hey, I'm only going to buy a new phone every two, three years, then Apple as a company would have to respond and they in turn would be more green. So by both you making those green choices, companies are going to respond because that's how economics works. It's that supply and demand. If you're not buying a new phone every year, a company like Apple is going to say, all right, we'll make a new phone every two, three years instead of wasting all this material making a new phone every year. You, you know, I feel even worse than that. I'm not sure everybody needs a new phone every year or every two years, but Apple actually reminds you, you need it every one yes. year or every two <laughs> years to be cool. That's the power of advertisement. You, you, you see all the commercials that, that tell you, you need to buy the diamond because <laughs> you deserve it. You need to buy this, mm-hmm. buy that because you deserve it, not because you really need it. But that's mm-hmm. a different yeah, it's this story. entire cultural <laughs> shift. Yeah, yes, yes, this entire yeah. cultural shift. But speaking about green, and I don't know if you're aware, but we have a, a bit of a history in common for our education. Uh, we both attended Colorado State University, you for a bit longer than myself. But what were some of your, before we move on, what were some of your memorable campus moments while studying to get your atmospheric science PhD in Fort Collins? You, you know, one memory was in one winter, it was so cold. Our old car could not jump start. You know, somebody <laughs> refused to start. Uh-huh. But we wanted to have some parties. What did we do? We essentially did the cross country <laughs> ski. <laughs> <laughs> to visit our friends in Fort Collins, yeah. Colorado. <laughs> yeah, I remember, you know, I'm from Minnesota, so snowfall here is, I mean, we're getting blasted by snow every winter. So going to Fort Collins and people were like, it's snowing. I'm like, this is this is light snow. This is light snow. But every once in a while, it gets some heavy snow, especially up in the mountain regions where, yeah, you can ski and everything <laughs> of that nature. Hey, you know, you are from... Minnesota, another experience was we went to Minneapolis to visit a family friend years ago because we are in Arizona. Our kids do not know what does river mean. Oh, okay, you know, it's simple. <laughs> river is river. You don't need to explain. But in Tucson, mm-hmm. most of the rivers, you don't have any water. 
It's just a cold river. So I thought I'm going to bring them to see the, the river, the snow. So we went there. Boy, the snow was up to our waist. And my son <laughs> was at that time a few years old. So he put on everything, tried to touch the ground, but he couldn't. And he gave up. So that's another memory, just saying how deep the snow was that particular yeah. year <laughs> in Minneapolis uh, during the Christmas time. <laughs> well, it's always good to find a Colorado State uh, fellow alum, so good to mention that. But before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help get back to different parts of the community and those who help build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Professor, your charity of choice for today's episode is the American Meteorological Society. Do you mind explaining a bit about your work within the society? Uh, congratulations on receiving the Charles Franklin Brooks Award for Outstanding Service and the impact of advancing weather, water, and climate science. When you talk about the citizen science, we have wonderful citizens across the whole nation, and they want to do more science. And which organization is most successful in bringing those citizen science together? That's American Meteorological Society. There are so many volunteers making the weather measurements and many of them really love weather because that's part of their life. Mm -hmm. They can drink their beer and talk about tomorrow's weather and a football game all together. And the, how do we bring those things together? Give them that excitement. There is a strong partnership between the government agency and the American Meteorological Society to help our citizens to better understand the weather at a local and a national and international level and provide some of the support, not the financial, but say the how to do things correctly. So in different ways to help those volunteers. And besides, this is a good area. There are about 13,000 members, plus not of, not necessarily members, but the just the citizens who love weather try to get some involvement in weather activities. Yeah, that's interesting. You never think about it. Like the common thing, if you don't know what to say is, what about that weather? So being able to talk more broadly about it and have a society like this is always a, a, a net positive, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just give you example. We just published a few papers generating every day's snow depths data over contaminants U.S. of the four kilometers square. So four kilometer by four kilometer or 2.5 mile by 2.5 every area across the nation every day from 1981. Over Western U.S., there are government sites, but across the whole continent, there are tens of thousands of volunteers making the measurements and we bring them together. And we take the credit in reality. We should not because all those volunteers should take the credit for their contributions to science and for the use by everybody for whatever they want from ski resorts for the preparing of water resources and climate change. Well, I appreciate you sharing on the show today. And if any listeners are interested, obviously, this is a great example. Uh, so, Professor, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Sure. All right, let's do it. This is from CNN World Europe. Written by Sarah Lazarus, March 27th, 2019. Doomsday Vault Town Warming Faster 
than any other on Earth. In 2014, Mark Sabatini, the editor of a local newspaper in Longyearbyen, noticed cracks in his apartment walls. Then, the apartment block's communal staircase became just a bit crooked. Longyearbyen, eight miles from the North Pole in the capital of a cluster of Norwegian islands called Svalbard, is built on permanently frozen ground called permafrost, which you uh, mentioned prior in this episode, Professor. For years, permafrost provided a base as hard as concrete, but now it's melting, and that's proving to be a problem. Samantini says his apartment building was damaged because it was sinking into the ground. Inger Hansen Bauer, senior researcher at the Norwegian, Norwegian Meteorological Institute, said the climate in Longyearbyen is probably warming faster than any other town on Earth because of accelerated Arctic warming. As rising temperatures reduce ice and snow cover, less sunlight is reflected, and more solar energy is absorbed by the darker surfaces that have been exposed. The annual mean temperature in Longyearbyen in 1900 was negative 7.8 degrees Celsius, or about 18 degrees Fahrenheit, but has risen by 3.7 degrees Celsius, which is more than three times the global average of about 1 degree Celsius, or about 33.8 degrees Fahrenheit. The weather hasn't only gotten hotter, though. It's also gotten wetter. In the late 20th century, annual rainfall in Longyearbyen was about 7.9 inches. But in the past decade, the town has suffered occasional torrential downpours of 2 inches of rain in a day. The changing climate could endanger the lives of their residents, starve the animals that live in its hinterland, and could imperil an institution which safeguards the world's crop supply. Just outside Longyearbyen is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, often referred to as the Doomsday Vault, which stores copies of the world's crop seeds. It was created to act as a backup in case of catastrophes such as disease, pests, war, and climate change. Maria Haga, executive director of the Crop Trust, says Longyearbyen is the perfect spot for the seed vault because the area is not prone to volcanoes or earthquakes, while the Norwegian political system is also extremely stable. Must be nice. She goes on to state, Svalbard is the ultimate failsafe for biodiversity of crops. According to a report in 2019, the average temperature in Longyearbyen is predicted to rise 7 to 10 degrees Celsius, about 44.6 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, by the end of the century depending on the level of global carbon emissions. But perhaps most worrying of all, the thawing permafrost could further fuel global warming. Franz Jean Parmentier, an Arctic climate scientist, states, Permafrost holds an immense amount of carbon, and I did a little conversion here, so there's about 1,600 billion tons of carbon in the permafrost, or about the same weight as 30 Great Walls of China, enough to double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Kim Holman, international director of the Norwegian Polar Institute, says that Longyearbyen's story is a forewarning. The assumptions that climate change is not so serious have been proven wrong, and he adds that the increasing strength and frequency of extreme events needs attention. Holman states, The brutality of nature used to bring joy, but now it scares people. And so, Professor, to that quote, brutal, extreme weather, it's always existed here on Earth, but what about our current weather is different? How do we have productive conversations with individuals who look at what's happening with climate change as just a natural progression of Earth's climate. You, you, you know, we have passed the time. Now the answer is simple, move on. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, global warming is real, is causing trouble for all of us, or for most of us. We need to move on, uh, think of uh, taking actions. But before that, let me try to explain a few science points to make sure the audience get it. For example, for Tucson, Arizona, 
if we see the increase of temperature, we don't necessarily see the increase in precipitation. Okay, so the increase of precipitation is not necessarily correlated with the increase of temperature. In contrast, over high latitudes, it's opposite. If you increase temperature, on average, you would see the increase of precipitation. So for Arctic, that's the worst case. With the increased temperature, we would see heavier precipitation. That's why you can even talk about the flooding in such northernmost town, very close to North Pole. That's the context to, to explain the science. The, the second interesting thing is, in, indeed, as I mentioned earlier, not just for that town, overall for Arctic, the only in the past 150 years is twice uh, as large as the global average. So the OMI there is faster. And worth keeping in mind, the year-to-year -year variation is worth greater. That, that's, that's the other factor. So as I mentioned earlier, the normalized OMI is actually not as high as over the Amazon rainforest. But still, in terms of absolute temperature increase, it's the highest over the Arctic. So yeah, there is this clear data that says humans are responsible for this. This is not just a natural progression of Earth's climate. And there is another evidence. It's not just natural. That's from the U.S. military. Okay, you can talk about individuals or companies, mm -hmm. but when you talk about the very powerful military, the most powerful military on Earth, that's U.S. military. When they worry about the Arctic, you know it's real. <laughs> Otherwise, they would not worry about it. What's happening is that the decrease of sea ice and the, the thawing of permafrost make U.S. military to worry about national security. The attacks through the Arctic Ocean is much faster by other countries. And then the high latitude oming makes the logistics and the battlefields management much more challenging. So they are worrying about they are taking actions. That's just another indication. It's real. It's not somebody's just imagination. But like, how 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 do you have like? I, I definitely agree with you 100. percent But like, how are we supposed to have these conversations with individuals who don't believe that? Who look at all these scientists and climate change activists and say, "No, I just think it's natural." You 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 know, I have given talks to local church groups. Had I mean the happy hour conversation with my neighbors, my own conclusion is that most of the uh, people, our neighbors, our friends, actually are quite sensible. But whenever you try to exaggerate, they feel offended. When you say all the things you blame on global warming, they begin to say that's not really the case. If you are a little bit more sensible, then I have not really seen anybody pushing me back seriously. People still have different opinions. They can say, you know, that's my religious background. I just don't believe it. Everything is created by God. We are not going to change the nature. There are even arguments like that. We are not going to say that's wrong. Okay, that, that's completely different. But for the normal conversation, I really have not gotten any real pushback. Of course, myself is quite moderate. I do not draw 
conclusions easily. Most of the time, I have more doubts myself than confidence in claiming many things. Yeah. So a part of having better conversations is being more reasonable, not saying if we don't change this, if we don't throw away all of our electronics, the world's going to end in ten years. But being more reasonable <laughs> and following, you know, more data that's actually true, rather than as you were saying, exaggerating to create almost a sense of fear. Like if we don't do this, the world's going to end. Yeah, I mean, this guy will not fall down. Basically, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. that, that's a part of the motivation you you mentioned earlier. I I wrote a news article on the attribution of extreme events to mm-hmm. global warming. Why did I write that article? Try to help the readers understand the steps, how the science is done, but equally important, just as emphasized in that title, attribution science cannot explain all the extreme events and blame the extreme events to global warming. To certain events, we have more confidence. For others, we do not have as much confidence. Yet, at the same time, that's a new emerging science. Ten years ago, we did not even talk about attribution. Now, at least, we have some confidence to talk about attribution. That's good progress. But in science, just like anything, there is a universal curves. Initially, nobody pays attention. Then everybody gets excited, and you guarantee some of the exaggerations, bold statements. Then people calm down, and then that becomes something more mature. That's just how science moves forward. And here, I feel attribution science is still in this early stage. So there are good stuff there. But there are also probably some exaggerations because people want to draw those conclusions. That's what they want. So they draw those conclusions, and that will get some of the other people off. And my own purpose is to remind people there are rational steps to do the science, but you have to be careful to recognize the weaknesses of the methods so that you don't go to the extreme. To draw all the conclusions that all the extreme events are due to global warming, that's simply not true. Because extreme events always happen with or without human beings, it's guaranteed. Yeah, I think that's a very good reminder to not draw conclusions. And I think as humans, we tend not to want to be as patient as we should be because we want answers. And especially when it starts to affect our own personal, you know, lives and our family lives and our friends' lives and our coworker lives. You know, we want these conclusions that can say, "All right, this is what we need to go up against." But that's not how science works. You can't just take a small set of data and say this is the answer to our hypothesis. You know, science is about taking large swaths of data and trying to form a conclusion from that large swath instead of forming conclusions from the small set of data. You know, you're absolutely right. For attribution, I listed the four steps. The first step is what you just said: the data. People talk about extreme events, as if every heavy precipitation is extreme event, or every hundred degree Fahrenheit is extreme event. Well, that's a, that's no, a good that's question. A, like, how would you define an extreme weather event? That itself is interesting. Typically, we define in terms of. Unprecedented event. That means with a record, this is the strongest event. That's the most rigorous definition, but that does not happen every day.、Mm-hmm. So then you can reduce the criteria a little bit to say something like once every fifty years, once every hundred years. But the trouble is, if you only have thirty years of data, how do you know 
That's once in a 100-year event. Now, you are using a statistical curve to fit the data. That would introduce some uncertainty. We are not saying anything really wrong, but people need to realize the first step is the data. And over Arctic, for example, how many sites do we have actually with long-term observational data? Very minimal, because human beings cannot survive. And for the natives, they did not make the measurements using the modern instruments. Therefore, when we talk about even Arctic warming, we have to have certain reservations here, not in terms of the overall conclusion. But when you become serious over different regions, you have to ask, do we have the data? Okay, we have some data overland. How about the sea ice? We did not have any data over sea ice mm-hmm. from decades ago because no human beings can survive in winter over sea ice in the really interior. There is just no way. And those are the factors atmospheric scientists do consider. But at the same time, I want to remind people that also means there is certain uncertainty when we say this is a once in a century event. Okay, you, you have to be a little bit careful. If it's not once a century, but if it's once 50 years, you still get your point out. Rather than say that's once in a century event. You're creating that exaggeration, that f- potential fear, because you want, I mean, especially within news and what I do with the news, you want the clicks. Yeah, e- exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then what are those other factors of attribution science? You talked about that first tent pole. What are the other three? Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the second one is you need to have the computer model and supercomputers to run the model, compare your results with historical data to demonstrate your model is good enough to reproduce historical extreme events. That's not easy to do. It's easier said than done. I mean, that's part of the reason we could not do uh, extreme uh, attribution, say, 20 years ago. We did not have the understanding the modeling tool and the supercomputers at that time to do that. Today, situation is much better. We can do the second step relatively well. And then the third one is what's a human impact? We know today's environment, but what would be the world without human beings? Essentially, 1850, at that time, your ancestors were somewhere, but there were no data, very, very limited data. And we have to create, just like a Hollywood movie, you create a imagined world at that time mm-hmm. with limited data and the new understanding. And of course, that would introduce errors. I'm not saying that's just junk. No, we do have understanding the data to create what the world would be in 1850. But we have to admit there are some errors. Then we rerun our computer model. And then the difference between the results from this simulation and the previous simulation for the current uh, world, the difference would represent the human impact. And then we need a statistical tools. That's the last step to interpret the impact in terms of the magnitude and the frequency of extreme events. Mm-hmm. So those are the four steps. I mean, they are rigorous steps, nothing wrong in terms of fundamental science, but we just have to recognize each of the steps could introduce some uncertainties. That's why the results are more reliable for some, but less reliable 
for other extreme events. No, I appreciate you know you as a scientist and researcher going the extra steps to make sure you're not just kind of jumping to conclusions and making sure that the information that you're putting out into the world is actually backed by concrete data rather than just I needed to get this done, so here it is. Yeah, you, you know if I add one last point that is. People can say, we don't need to make any damn decision because with all the uncertainties. But that's wrong. I mean, in our life, even when you prepare a barbecue during the weekends for the football game or the, the European football, American soccer, you still have all the uncertainties, but you still do it. You still take action. Mm-hmm. I mean, for all the things we do, there are always uncertainties. The only thing guaranteed is that you and I pay tax and we're going to die sometime <laughs> in the future. Everything else, the uncertainties, but we still take actions. Yes, but it's better to take calculated risks than just, you know, risks out of the blue. That's a real wisdom, calculated risks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Professor Zhang, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest, most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to read more about Professor Zhang uh, from his publications to his research to his teachings, or even his other media appearances, you can do so by heading over to his website, www.xzong.faculty.arizona.edu. Once again, that's www.xzeng.faculty.arizona.edu. Or as always, you can find that link in the description of this episode or on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. And once again, kind of continuing on what we were just talking about, as someone who's released you know, a good amount of research and data into the world, whether it be through you know, yourself, groups and societies you're included in, or even among former students and colleagues, What's the importance to you personally that your research and data has such a wide net of use in our world? Well, for, for me, I, I always think from the end user's perspective, end user could be our citizens or people in the world, but could also be the government agencies making the weather forecastings. Once you think from end user's perspective, just like Apple, for example, why Apple produce wonderful products? Because they really think from end users or the scientists, that's my own way. Rather than just feel happy about the number of papers I have produced, the citations, those things are important. But in the end, it's about if there are people, not your amount of people or organizations, use the stuff we have produced with the support of our own taxpayers. For that, I'm always grateful. I feel that's also our obligation to produce things to further our understanding and to be useful and used by the people. Well, Professor, very wise words throughout this episode. Once again, wise words again. Uh, All right, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. The only such podcast on the internet, here's a quick fact for you, on the internet, hosted by myself, and guest hosted today by Professor Sung, where we take these strangest and most interesting real-life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in these bizarre news stories. Professor, you've listened to an episode before. You know how this ends. I'm going to hand off the show to you to close out the show however you see fit to perfectly wrap up this entire episode, this wonderful conversation in a perfect bowl. Professor, the floor is yours. Well, it was a fun talking with you. Talking with you, Adam, I really enjoyed this conversation. And of course, I hope we have helped your listeners to gain a little bit more about the science on the topics we are talking about, extreme weather, 
global warming, uh, what we can do as individuals, as uh, organizations. And uh, I hope to see you again or talk with you again in the future. Definitely. Yeah. I would love to have you back on again. Well, Professor, thank you very much. Yeah. Like like you said, it's been a wonderful conversation. It's This is why I do this podcast is to learn from people like yourself who you know, have something to say and have something important to say. And for myself to kind of be selfish, I love being able to take in all this information and see the world in a little different way after every one of these conversations. So for that, thank you very much. Well, I also want to thank you because, you know, I'm a scientist with all the conversation. We are also seeing the other party, if the other party is well prepared. And for that, you are well prepared. You did your homework. I spent some time to prepare myself. And for that, I'm grateful for your preparation and hope in the end that will give something of high quality to your listeners. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, listeners, until next time, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>